Welcome to the Irish Embassy Podcasts, news from Ireland, the Embassy and the Irish in Canada. I hope you enjoy them. Today we have a look at St. Brendan's voyages in the North Atlantic and Avagatio Sancti Brendani about his journey to the Promised Land. We like to think that St. Brendan and his monks sailed and rode across the Atlantic by its shortest route from Kerry to Newfoundland. That it was technically possible using the technology of the time was demonstrated by Tim Severin in the 1970s. That it was achieved in the 6th century, alas, there's no hard evidence. St. Brendan may not have crossed the North Atlantic to Canada, but he and his crew unmistakably traversed a good part of it, certainly as far as Iceland. How much is evident from the ancient account of his voyage, the medieval bestseller Navigatio Sancti Brendani Abati, The Voyage of St. Brendan the Abbot. Written in Hiberno-Latin around 800, it was translated many times and is the most popular Irish work from the Middle Ages. It is in fact a European epic. There is 120 manuscripts running from the 10th to the 16th centuries, spreading as far north as the Baltics, east to Russia and south to the Iberian Peninsula. St. Brendan himself was an historical figure, born around 484 in County Kerry, somewhere around Tralee Bay, possibly near Fenet or Kilfenora. Baptised by Bishop Irk, he was fostered between the ages of one and six by St. Ida, famous for her virtues and her school, where she taught many of the patron saints of Ireland as young boys. True faith, pure heart and simple life were her watchwords. Brendan would visit her throughout his life and abide by her counsel. Famed for his chastity, even as a young boy of ten years, he mercilessly beat a young princess for daring to ask him to play with her. As a follower of St. Finian, Brenda became known as one of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. He founded monasteries where he sailed, including the Aran Islands, islands off the Scottish coast, in Wales and in Brittany. His most famous monastery was at Clonfort in East Galway, where he had 3,000 followers. From these, he would pick 14 to crew his boat on his voyages around the Atlantic. According to the tale, St. Brendan was searching for the promised land of the saints, literally a piece of heaven on earth. They were fated, it was said, to voyage seven years before finding it. Reading the Navigatio Brendani today, it still has great power. There are startlingly vivid images that live on with you. Of the monk who deserts the boat and runs into a volcano, seized by demons and burnt. St. Brendan calls after him, Alas for you, my son, that you have received such a fate as you deserve while living. Which is a bit harsh. Of the tortured Judas on his rock in the ocean, swarmed by demons and his pitiful pleading. Of the island of smithies, hurling friary rocks at Brendan and his crew, such that the sea around them boiled. Of the famous lunch on the whale, the monks trying to cook lunch on the back of Jasconius the whale. Of a tree festooned by birds who chant and speak, bells ringing as they beat their wings. Of the gigantic pillar of crystal in the sea, which is clearly an iceberg, but its equally gigantic net, which is a mystery of the clashing monsters of the deep and of the air, of the monk from whose chest a demon emerges, of the anchorite covered in white bodily hair, living on a high circular island with little more than two caves, a stream and a helpful otter to get him going with supplies of fish and firewood. There are plenty of references to voyaging on the sea, the sense of brine, the description of difficult landing spots and the chores of finding supplies, hoisting the sail and shipping the oars, to let themselves surrender to the wind and the currents in faith of God's will. Naturalistic it certainly is, but it's not realism. The voyage is otherworldly, the boat and its crew moving through the divine architecture of space and time. Heaven's gyres turn all the heavens and earth like some clockwork diorama. Their seven years of voyages are cyclical, calling in to meet other monasteries, hermits and anchorites, 
descriptions that are redolent of real encounters. Their grail is ostensibly finding the promised land of the saints, but it is in truth an allegory about the ideal monastic life. Brendan and his crew have been told that they will return each of their seven years on the sea to the same place in accordance to the liturgical calendar, notably its high point, Easter devotions. The boat circulates and arrives on its liturgical schedule. Scenes unfold, patterns repeat, numbers freighted with meaning like 3, 7 and 40 recur. Time becomes timeless. All unfolds as it must. All actions and events are freighted with religious meaning and divine revelation. Even the whale, Jasconius, returns each year to the same spot where the monks first encountered him to ensure that their journey follows the liturgical demands of the calendar. Even nature is subordinated to God's will and the unfolding of his plan. Among these gyrations, the fixed centre is the imperturbable figure of St. Brendan, the man of God, the father of his group of monks. He is the conduit for God's will, commanding demons, reassuring his panicked companions, presciently seeing through the illusions to the divine purpose. St. Brendan's quest is successful as indeed he finds through a liminal fog the island, suffused in divine light, moving beyond space and time, the island of the land of saints. He can return home, his pilgrimage successful, to die as preordained in Ireland. It is also clear that, however fantastical the images, the tale is referencing actual locations, notably the Faroe Islands, Rockall, and of course memorably Iceland, the island of the smithies. That he reached Greenland and the Sargasso Sea is speculative. Had the tale said that Brendan sailed west to the promised land of the saints, one might argue he reached Newfoundland, like Severin did, but it's clear that the text says he sailed east. That said, Irish monks, including St. Brendan, did in fact extensively explore the North Atlantic and settled its islands in the search for the perfect monastic life, such as famously at Iona in the Hebrides. Brendan himself, in addition to his main establishment on Clonfert in East Galway, established monasteries in the islands near Iona. The Irish monks settled Iceland around 795, Recent research suggests monks settled on the pharaohs. For all its combination of biblical and classical tropes, the Brenner voyage is very recognisably Irish, with its roots in the Celtic Imrama genre, journeys to and adventures in otherworldly places. Islands appear and disappear. Fogs are liminal entry points. Talking animals are guides, lost souls are tricksters. Not surprisingly, there are no deer turning into beautiful women or beautiful women disappearing into the mist in, in, in the Brendan voyage. Um, these are monks after all. But there are devouring monsters bearing names. Places of eternal youth too, recalling Tiernanog. The hero returns home, the hero dies. All echo through Brendan's voyage. The other strong element is the ascetic ideal of the monks. Towards the end of the 8th century, asceticism enjoyed a strong revival in Ireland. Just as the Brendan voyage was being written. Derived from zealous Christian hermits living in the deserts of Egypt and Syria, notably the life of St. Anthony, and influenced by the teachings of British saints like St. Gildas and St. David, the ascetic ideal appealed strongly to many in early Christian Ireland. Asceticism became deeply inculcated in its monastic life, a movement led by the Kaili Day, or Companions of God. The Kuldis, as they were known, were rigorous ascetics. Though they now formed groups, unlike the anchorites of previous times who stayed alone, it is surely reasonable to apply the words reform, or better, religious revival to these developments, writes the indispensable Kathleen Hughes in her classic history, The Church in Early Irish Society. One of the Coldy leaders was Mael Ruin, founder of the monastery at Tala, 
and it's probably no coincidence that the first reference to Brendan's adventures is associated with Tala. In this context, the Brendan voyage serves to rally the troops in rejection of the laxities of the old church. The Kuldis rejected meddling in the real world, such as missionary trips to Europe, and saw great dangers in exposure to women. Voyaging in the Atlantic in search of inspiring fellow travellers was a feasible alternative to simply staying put. Cross vigils with arms outstretched for hours on end, vigils in water, flagellation by another monk, and long fasts from food and water, rote learning, and long recitations. These were some of the rigours the Kuldis put themselves through. Like them, Brendan and his monks fast regularly, often only eating every second or third day. Like them, Brendan and his monks only ease their routines for liturgical celebrations. For all the devotions and asceticism of Irish monks, Ireland in the 9th century was a place of violence and turmoil. The first Viking attack on Ireland occurred in 795, and the Vikings continued to plunder the monasteries, bringing to an end its golden age. They were out for plunder, which they found in the monasteries, and for slaves, which they found in the population which had settled around the monasteries. What people they did not take as slaves, they slaughtered, and then burnt the monastery. This was a new type of warfare, unfamiliar to the Gaelic Irish, where heretofore warfare was a largely aristocratic activity focused on cattle raiding. Quite how much turmoil the Vikings sowed in Ireland is hard to judge. Certainly it was significant since the Viking focus was on the monasteries that provided the urban hubs of Gaelic Ireland as centres of worship, learning, craft, manufacturing, culture and trade. Gaelic Irish kings like Phelim of Munster raided and burned monasteries, though less frequently than Vikings. Paradoxically, Phelim was regarded as a leading ascetic. Monasteries themselves fought each other, and even St. Brendan the Clonfert was engaged in a long feud, physical battles indeed, with Cork. For protection, monasteries often were led by abbot kings. Families controlled monasteries through inheritance, and their integration into Gaelic society inevitably meant they were embroiled in its regnal wars. Writes Kathleen Hughes, so the old practices went on, and while one anchorite dwelt alone in his hermit cell, renouncing this wretched world, another who held a kingdom assumed abbacies, burnt churches beyond his own borders, and slew their inhabitants. Amidst all this turmoil, no wonder that the Navigatio Brindani was needed to hold up an ideal of the monastic life. If it is unlikely that St. Brendan reached Newfoundland, that is not to say that a monk or monks did not set out from Ireland across the unknown and make landfall on the North American continent, somewhere in Canada. The hardy ascetic monks of Ireland were more than able for the rigours of such a journey. More importantly, they had the ideology to attempt such a feat, an act of zealous devotion to their beliefs. At the outer edge of the world, they would have expected to meet and challenge demons, testing their spiritual valour as soldiers of Christ. They would have emulated Christ's exile from heaven, while on earth saving mankind. More universally, such a venture would have been a response to innate human curiosity to look beyond the horizon, a powerful drive in our nature that humans as a species have exhibited throughout our existence. For now at least, the honour for the first Europeans to reach Canada from across the North Atlantic goes to the Vikings, Leif Erikson and his band of followers in about 1000 AD, 500 years after St. Brendan's voyages in the North Atlantic. <laughs>